You see, we tend to have a distorted view of ourselves and a distorted view of God. We usually think too highly of ourselves, and we think way too low of God. Welcome to The Fox Den with Terry Fox. Greetings, everyone, and thanks for joining me in The Fox Den. I'm going to begin this episode with a couple questions. If I were to ask you how you view yourself, what would you say? We tend to have a pretty high view of ourselves. We tend to think that we're good people. I mean, we pay our bills. We take care of our families. We do a good job at work. I mean, after all, I'm not like Hitler. I didn't kill millions of people. And now, if I were to ask you how you view God, what would you say? Would you say he's mean, overbearing? He doesn't want you to have fun in this life? He just sits up in heaven and looks for opportunities to mess with you so you don't enjoy yourself? Maybe you think that God sets too high a standard? Maybe you think he's like Santa Claus, and he loves to just pass out blessings to everybody and overlook sins. It's, it's no big deal. You try. He just wants to bless you. You see, we tend to have a distorted view of ourselves and a distorted view of God. We usually think too highly of ourselves, and we think way too low of God. And this is a huge problem. First, it can cause you to look to salvation in all the wrong places. You see, if you think too highly of yourself then you're likely to look to yourself and your own merit to satisfy God. And if that's the case, if you're looking to your own merit, you're doomed. And you'll see why I say this in just a moment. If you think too lowly of God, you may fail to see the actual basis of your salvation. With a distorted view of God, you will think that God either expects you to be perfect in order to let you into heaven, or let you into heaven because he just can't say no to you. So a distorted view of God is a huge problem, first, because it can cause you to look to salvation in all the wrong places. But second, a distorted view of God and yourself can destroy your hope, comfort, and your confidence in God's grace. Again, you'll fail to see accurately how God saves, and you can fall into the trap of believing that God saves based on your merit. And therefore, you may think that when you fail, God's going to kick you out of the kingdom. You see, it's important that we have a proper view of ourselves and of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is dependent on getting this right. And also, getting this wrong will likely discourage you and cause you to look to yourself for salvation. So in this episode, we're going to look at what the Bible says about us and what it says about God. And I think you're going to be surprised. In this episode, you're going to see that you're worse than you think you are. But God is so much better than you can ever imagine. Now, as a heads up here, this is not going to be an exhaustive study about God. We're only going to look at God from a particular angle. It's kind of like when Brenda and I were looking for a home. Before we saw the home, we only saw pictures of the home. So, for example, one picture was the front of the home. So we got a view of the the front yard, of the door. And then in another picture, we saw the kitchen, and there were pictures of the different bedrooms. But we didn't see the whole house. We only saw parts of the house. And what's funny is we've been in this house for over five years, and I'm still learning things about the house. I see things now that I never saw before. So it's kind of the same with God. We're only going to look at God from a particular angle in this episode. So let's begin by looking at what the Bible says about us. And we're going to start in Romans 3.23. And there Paul tells us that all of us have sinned, and we fall short of the glory of God. Now the first thing to note is that we have sinned, so that's a past tense verb. But notice, when it talks about falling short, it's a present tense. So Paul didn't say we have sinned and fell short. He said we have sinned, past tense, and fall short, which means we continue to fall short of the glory of God. And then John, in his first epistle, 
confirms that we sinned. As a matter of fact, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, he says if we say that we haven't sinned or that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. You see, if I think that there is no sin in me, then I'm lying to myself. You see, he didn't just say if we sinned. He says if we say that we don't have sin, we're lying to ourselves. And so from this, we can imply that what he's getting at is that all of us have sin, not just that we did sin, but we have sin. And then moving back to the Old Testament, in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20, there we see that there is not a single righteous man on earth. There is not a person who does good. There's not a person who never sins. And I hope you caught that. Not a single one of us are righteous. That's the point he's getting at. None of us do good, and all of us sin. Paul actually confirms this in Romans chapter 3. In verse 10, he says, there's not a single one of us who is righteous. Not one. And then in verse 12, he says, there's not a single one of us who does good. And again, he reiterates, not one. So in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, Paul's describing mankind. He's actually describing Jew and Gentile, which includes all mankind. And he's saying that all of us are evil. Not a single one of us is righteous. Not a single one of us does good. Not one. You see, it's not those guys. It's us. And then he describes what verses 10 to 12 look like in verses 13 to 18. They kill with their mouths. They deceive. They're destructive. That's you and me. We are not righteous. We do not do good. In fact, the point that Paul is getting at is we do the opposite of good. We lie. We destroy. We kill. Now, I'm sure you're saying that you have not killed anybody. And I believe that to be true. Either have I. But the point that Jesus would make and the point that Paul's making here is our hearts are destructive. We kill with our thoughts. We kill with our words. And then if we move a couple chapters forward to chapter 8, we'll look at verse 7. And Paul tells us the mind that is set on the flesh hates God. What does it mean, the mind set on the flesh? Now, we might be able to make an argument that a believer could have his mind set on the flesh, but a non-believer could never have his mind set on the Spirit. So the non-believer's mind is always set on the flesh, and that mind hates God, is hostile to him, is at war with him, wants to destroy him. And that mind that is set on the flesh, as Paul describes it, refuses to submit to God and be obedient to him. Why would he? He hates God. But at the very end of verse 7, notice what Paul says. Not only does that mind that's set on the flesh refuse to submit to God, he can't. He's unable. You see, no man can change his heart and love God. And Paul concurs with Romans 8, 7 elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. And let's look at Genesis 6, 5. And this is back just before God flooded the earth. And it says there that God saw the wickedness in the earth, and it was great. The wickedness was great. And notice how it describes this. Every single intention of man's thoughts down in his heart was nothing but evil on a continuous basis. You see, man had no good intention. He may have been able to do some good things, but his intentions were nothing but evil. And now let's move forward to Romans chapter 6, verse 23. And there Paul tells us that what we deserve because of our sin is death. You see, he uses the word wage the wages of sin. So we earn death because of our sin. That's why you and I are going to die. We earned that. You see, you and I are worse than we ever thought. But here's the good news. God is so much better than we could ever imagine. Look at the end of verse 23. 
We deserve death because of our sin, but God gives a gift, and that gift is eternal life, and he gives that gift through Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to think about gift. Gift is not something that you earn. It's given to you freely. You didn't deserve it. So we deserve death because of our sin, but God gives a gift which is free, and that gift is eternal life and is given through Jesus Christ. You see, now we're beginning to see how absolutely wonderful God is. Let's go back a chapter to chapter 5, and let's look at Romans 5, 8. There Paul tells us that God demonstrated his love when Christ died for us while we were still sinners. You see, Jesus didn't die for good people. He died for evil people. Jesus Christ, who is a man and at the same time God, came to earth, took our sins on himself, and died in our place. He didn't die when we were good people. He died for us when we hated him. He died for us while we were sinners. And then if we turn to John chapter 6, verses 37 to 40, we see that God had given Jesus a group of people to save. And we see there that Jesus came to save those whom the Father had given him, and he is going to raise them up on the last day. You see, when Jesus returns, we're rising from the dead, entering into eternal glory with God. You see, God was intentional. We sinned against him back in Genesis, and he is pursuing us to rescue us. And he gives us a clue of his persistence to save us. In Matthew 18, verses 10 through 14, Jesus tells a parable about a lost sheep. And there a shepherd has a hundred sheep, and one of them goes astray. And what does he do? He leaves the ninety-nine, and he pursues the one to rescue him. And then he says that it's not the Father's will that any of these should perish. So God is pursuing us to rescue us, and this parable gives us a glimpse of God's persistence. And then if we move forward again to Ephesians, in chapter 2 we see what God does. He takes the spiritually dead person, he makes him alive with Christ, raises him with Christ, and seats him with Christ in the heavenly places. Remember what Paul said back in Romans 8, 7, that the mind that is hostile to God refuses to submit to God, but even worse, he can't? Here, in Ephesians 2, we see that God makes them alive with Christ. Now they can respond. Now they're willing to obey him, serve him, love him, because of the work of the Holy Spirit, to change them from dead to alive. And God, because of his grace, seats us with Christ in the heavenly places. That means while we're down here on earth living this life, our citizenship is in heaven. We're just waiting to go home. And all this because of the grace of God. In fact, that's what Paul says there in verse 8, that we've been saved by grace, and this through faith. You see, the whole work of salvation, even the faith that God requires, is a gift from him. He tells us that in verse 8. It's not a result of our own obedience and our own good works. He tells us that in verse 9. And he set it up this way so that none of us can boast about our own salvation. So move forward to the book of Colossians and look at what God does in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Or I should say, look at what he has done. It's past tense. Has delivered us from Satan's domain and he has transferred us to Christ's kingdom. God did this. God is the subject of this sentence. Delivered and transferred are the verbs. God's the one who did the delivering and the transferring. God rescued us from Satan's domain, and he moved us to Christ's kingdom. He did this because we deserved it? No, we've just reviewed several verses that show that we are evil. We deserve death. 
and God blesses us with eternal life and moves us to Christ's kingdom. In Ezekiel 34, we see God's extensive work in salvation. Here he's prophesying against the leaders and religious leaders of Israel, the shepherds. They have not done their job in taking care of the sheep. They have fed themselves, and quite frankly, they've sacrificed their own sheep. They have sacrificed God's sheep. And then God tells them what he is going to do. Starting there in verse 11, he's going to search them out. He's going to seek them out. He's going to rescue them. He's going to bring them out. He's going to gather them. He's going to bring them into their own land. He's going to feed them. He's going to be their shepherd. He's going to bind up their injuries. He's going to strengthen the weak. He's going to destroy their enemies. This is what God is going to do. This doesn't sound like God is mean. This sounds like God is gracious, loving, merciful, persistent in love. Look at how Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7 describes God. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is patient. He abounds in relentless love and faithfulness. He is slow to become angry. He is forgiving. You see, the Bible paints a different picture of who God is. We're the ones with the distorted view of God. Sure, he is just. There in verse 7, it says that God is not going to clear the guilty, but he forgives our sins because Christ came and died in our place. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God's justice is maintained, and yet our sins are forgiven because God became a man and died on the cross. Again, do you see how the Bible paints a completely different picture of who God is? So why is this important? Well, you need to have a proper understanding of yourself and who God is so that you can fully appreciate the grace of God. And you need to have a proper understanding of yourself and of who God is to properly understand the gospel. In other words, you'll see who you truly are and recognize what you deserve because of your sin, and you will run and rest in the grace of God and the work of Christ. And you need to have a proper understanding of yourself and who God is for your comfort and encouragement. Or said another way, a distorted view of God in particular will discourage you because you'll wonder if you've sinned one too many times. Is God going to kick me out of the kingdom? Is this it? Is now the time that I've sinned too much? According to the grace of God? No. And then finally, a proper understanding of yourself and who God is will drive you to Jesus. You see, as we accurately see ourselves, we recognize what we deserve, God's condemnation. And when we see who God is, a God who has given us this gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, and that God became a man, died on the cross, taking our sins on himself, living a perfect life on our behalf, we rest in his work. We rest in his grace. You see, it drives us back to him. So here's my assignment for you. Review each of the passages that we covered in this episode, and look closer at what these passages say about you and about God. And then pick one or two of these verses or passages concerning you and one or two concerning God and begin to memorize them. I think the passages concerning you will humble you and cause you to plead to God for his mercy and grace. And the passages that speak about God should comfort you and cause you to rest in his grace. Well, let's wrap up this episode by looking at Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7 again and then Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Again, in Exodus 34... Verses 6 and 7 tell us that God is merciful and gracious. He is not quick to become angry. He is overflowing with steadfast love, overflowing with faithfulness. He maintains that relentless love for thousands and forgives the sins of his people. 
And then let's jump forward to Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, and hear the invitation from Jesus. You who are burdened, he invites you to come to him, and he will give you rest. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe if you haven't done so already. You can find this podcast on several different apps. If you like what I do, please leave a positive review, and please share or tell others about The Fox Den. And also check out thefoxdenjournal.com for articles and other resources. And thanks for listening.